All right, let's begin with a word of prayer, and we will look at the end of Luke. Father, we are just glad to have another day to worship you. We are glad to open up this book and see what it is that you have for us. This is the source of truth. Uh, it's where we, um, where we learn about Christ and how we shape our lives after these words. It is unusual from an outside perspective, and yet for those of us in here, we know that we can't do anything else but look at, the, at your word and see how it speaks to us today. I ask that you would give us humility in responding to the things we learn and that we would just be faithful doers. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you could open to Luke 21. We'll kind of do what we did last week, where we'll just work through the questions and weave in the teaching as we go through them. So Luke 21 is where we'll begin. Before we get to the question, which starts in verse 25, we'll kind of build up to it. If you have headers in your Bible, you can see that Jesus is introducing a series of prophecies. He's talking almost the entire chapter uh, in terms of future events. So if you have headers, uh, verse 5, right above it, uh, informs us that Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. And this prophecy uh, kind of originates from the disciples walking around looking at the temple and commenting on how beautiful it is. They're like, wow, this place is awesome. And uh, I actually read a couple of accounts this week of what this temple may have looked like. Perhaps the most interesting feature was that the eastern wall was plated in gold. And so you can imagine as the sun was coming up over the horizon, it would catch that wall and just almost make like a mirror. It would just be like blazing in light, so bright you could hardly even look at it. And you can imagine that with this gold wall, uh, all of the ornate uh, structure and this and that, like the disciples are like, wow, this is unbelievable. And Jesus says, it's going to be destroyed. In fact, the destruction is going to be so thorough that not one stone is going to be left upon another. Can you imagine how catastrophic that would have been for Jewish people? Their temple's been destroyed twice before, I think. A third time? The place where God resides to have that just annihilated? Catastrophic. The news gets worse. Look at verse 10. My Bible says Jesus foretells wars and persecution. Not only is there this political turmoil, but there is a spiritual oppression that Jesus prophesies. He says people are going to hate you. Look at verse 16. You will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all, friend of my name's sake. Jesus said, this is what your future holds. People are going to hate you. How's that for a prophecy? doesn't get any better. Look at verse 20. It's not just the the temple that gets destroyed, but the whole city of Jerusalem. 
He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. And Jesus' instructions to these people follow in verse 21. He says, take cover. Hide. When you begin to see this take place, get out of here. Because the destruction that is going to befall Jerusalem is horrible. And we know from history that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD. Right? But there is still a prophecy that was future to the disciples and is future to us. And that begins in verse 25. Like Jesus had done with some of his other prophecies, he gives them some signs, some early warning systems to say, hey, when you see this, know that this is about to take place. Well, he does the same for this prophecy in verse 25. He says, hey, when you see these signs in the sun and moon and stars, uh, with the roaring of the sea and the waves, know that my return is near. This sounds a lot like the events of Revelation. I think the sixth seal judgment talks about the sun and the moon going dark, the stars falling. The whole created order is in absolute chaos, and we're told that there are two very different responses to this event. That's the first question. Let me ask you, how does the text say that the nations respond when they see everything just crumbling around them. Yes, Ida. Frightened, yes. (laughs) Anyone else? Greg. Yeah, these people, when they see the sun and the moon and the waves just go dark, these people are terrified. We can't blame them, right? How else do we think unsaved people would respond in that situation? Literally, they're probably thinking the world is coming to an end. They're not too far from the truth, huh? And when their world begins to crumble... So do they. If this life is all they have, and it starts to shake, that's pretty terrifying. Okay. Same set of events. How do believers respond to this? What does the text say believers should do? Claire. Okay, yeah, using the language of the text, what does it say? How do do they respond? Brenda. Brenda. Straighten up. Lift up your heads. There's a change in posture, right? You can imagine everyone else on earth, they see these events and their shoulders droop, their head drops, they're terrified. And yet Christians, Jesus says, stand up straight. Get excited. Yes, you guys are living in the same set of circumstances, but there is a totally different response that us believers should have when they see these things going crazy. And according to the text, why should our response to the end times be so different? There's a stated reason. Why is it? Julia. Because our redemption is drawing near. Now, at first glance, perhaps that is a little confusing. Maybe you're thinking in terms of, Redemption being that initial moment of conversion, and you're like, 
thought I was already redeemed, so how is it still in the future? That doesn't entirely make sense. Well, I think the scriptures uh, kind of reshape our understanding of redemption just a little bit with some other texts that help us realize that, yes, there is an initial moment of redemption, but there's also a future redemption. Romans 8 describes it as uh, the redemption of our bodies that we should be eagerly awaiting. I think that's obvious to a lot of us. Our souls have been redeemed. Our eternal destiny has changed, but our bodies still decay. They still die and fail and perish. And Romans encourages us, hey, look forward to that coming day where you're going to receive a new body. Ephesians chapter, I want to say two, talks about a still future day of redemption. Again, just keying us into the fact that, yes, there is a present redemption that takes place at the moment of conversion, but there's a still future day of redemption, the same one that I think is being described here in Luke uh, chapter 21. And given what we know about the context, Jesus is talking about what event already, his return, it would seem that the redemption drawing near is just a synonym for, I'm coming back. We are supposed to see these signs and conclude that the world isn't falling apart, God hasn't lost control, Jesus is returning. He's returning to judge, he's returning to make all things new, including our bodies. One commentator said about this passage that Jesus is not here in Luke 21 coming back to redeem us from the penalty of sin, but he is delivering us from a fallen world. And for someone who doesn't know Christ, I'm sure that the natural events that are happening at this time are terrifying, but is it not even more terrifying to know that Christ is coming back to judge? The text says he's coming back in power and great glory, People aren't going to be able to do to Jesus what they did to him the first time around. They're not going to be able to arrest him and put him to death again. For an unbeliever, these signs are an indication Jesus is coming back to judge. And they will experience God's wrath on sin. But for those of us who are in Christ, when we see these events, there can be nothing more glorious, right? To know that our time on this earth, the fall, sin that has wreaked havoc in our life, the persecution that we've faced for being followers of Jesus is coming into an end. The king is returning to redeem his own. To borrow from that uh, line from it as well, our faith will be made sight. How awesome is this? What everyone else interprets as terrifying, Jesus says, stand up straight. This is awesome. Be excited. I'm coming back. And I hope that as we contemplate uh, the events of the end times, that like the Apostle John in Revelation, we cry out, come Lord, come quickly. We cannot wait for you to come back and make all things new. Moving on to the second part of this question. Jesus continues his teaching in Luke 21 with kind of his standard um, warnings that he's given in both Matthew and Mark, I believe. He says, stay awake, be alert, 
Stand your guard, I'm returning. And according to verses 34 to 36, what are some of the things that Jesus warns believers to be on guard against? What are some of the things that he lists that might distract us from his return? Barb. Yeah, dissipation, not a word we use a whole lot. I actually had to look it up because I'd never heard that word before, really. <laughs> and uh, I think it means uh, a synonym might be indulgence, uh, waste, frivolous, kind of this party-type mindset. kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with drunkenness, to be honest. And then Jesus mentions the cares of this life. I should clarify, I had heard of the word dissipation before. I don't know what it means. Second question, what do you think are some of the common cares of this life that have successfully distracted us from being ready? Julia. Yeah, that is really perceptive. Did you guys hear what Julia said? She listed a bunch, money, our appearance, focusing on work and school and life and just getting caught up in the day-to-day -day activities that are around us. Yeah, great. What other things distract us from Christ's return? Brooklyn. Devices, yeah. Totally. How many hours do we spend a day on this? Great answer. Anyone else? Yeah, worry. I think that encapsulates well the cares of this life, maybe our pressing, what we think our needs. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Barb. Yeah, just indulging ourselves in what this world has to offer, right? I was reflecting on some of these things myself and like Julia, I just kind of settled on materialism. This life is all that unbelievers have. And so it makes sense to us that they are living for this life. And I think that unfortunately, that mindset has crept into our lives. And we very much see everyone else doing these things and we think, oh, that's just part of being an American, or that's part of living in this society. I, I will do that too. And next thing you know, our attitude is rising and falling with the state of our bank account, and we're comparing, you know, the whatever we have with other people. And I just kind of had this thought, you know, is, is Jesus at his return going to stop and, you know, ask us for our routing and account number so we can see how much money we've saved? Is he going to ask for a visit to come look into our house and say, wow, this is really nice? He's not. And I'm afraid that perhaps we've let our culture dictate what we're living for. And it's time for us to start swimming upstream and say, I see everyone else living like this. But this is a care of this life that is distracting me from being found ready at the return of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, I want to be leveraging the resources that God has given me, not to lay up treasure on this earth, but to be ready to lay up treasure in the next. Are we going to be found ready? Yes, Barb. Yeah, it's hard. There are people we love that don't know Christ yet. All right, let's move on to Luke 22. Luke 21 kind of rounds out a bit of a teaching section, it would seem, on Jesus' part. And 22 kind of drops us back into the narrative of that last week of Jesus' life. In Luke 22, we have recorded for us uh, Jesus and the disciples' observance of the Passover, Jesus praying in the garden, Peter's denial, Christ's trial. But before all of that, we're given a little behind the scenes into the betrayal of Jesus. Obviously, we know the disciple who betrayed Jesus is Judas. But according to verse 3, who was really behind Jesus' betrayal? Satan. Kind of interesting, huh? He's pretty active in this chapter. Jump down to verse 31, I think. Yeah, 31. Jesus says this. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. I'll comment on that really briefly. Uh, it's not entirely sure what's meant by Satan trying to sift like wheat, but maybe verse 32 gives us a little indicator as to the general idea that's happening. Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Whatever Satan's trying to do here by sifting Peter like wheat is to make his faith fail in some capacity. Excuse me. You may also have a footnote in your Bible after, uh, in verse 31, after the word you, and you follow that footnote down, and it says the Greek word for you in this verse is plural. So it has led some people and even translations to reword this first sentence and say, uh, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have all of you. As if Satan is not just coming after Peter, but he wants all of the disciples. I don't think the point is lost either way, whichever your translation says. The point is this, Satan is not just sitting back in his lazy boy, twiddling his thumbs as Jesus is on earth. He's active, as he is today. He's prowling around like a roaring lion. He is set against Jesus as he is on earth. Whether it be here in verse 31, coming after the disciples, in verse 3, entering Judas to lead to Christ's betrayal, back in chapter uh, 4, maybe, <laughs> when he is tempting Jesus, Satan is not content to let Jesus just get away with whatever he's, he's doing on earth. He's active. Yes, Mike. Um, certainly reads here in Luke that he was possessed, but he's also culpable for his actions, yeah. I think both are true. Um, Jesus says of him it would have been better that he had never been born. I mean, yeah, he's culpable for his actions. Okay, so according to Hebrews 2, verse 14 then, what is ironic about Satan conspiring to kill Jesus? There's some irony here. Julia? 
Yes, yes, yes. If you didn't hear Julia, she basically said, she quoted Hebrews 2.14, that through his death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. If we rephrase that into a little bit more of our language, you would say, it was Jesus' death that destroyed Satan. You can just imagine Satan sitting there thinking, here's Jesus, God in the flesh. I'll kill him and put an end to all of this. And yet he plays right into God's sovereign plan. It was through the death of Christ that Satan is defeated. Think about this. When was death introduced into the world? Garden of Eden. Sin and death, they go hand in hand. The natural outcome of sin is death. That's what Romans 6.23 is getting at. The wages of sin is death. It's not just a physical death. It's a spiritual death. Hebrews talks about us being enslaved to even just a fear of death in general. As Hebrews says, it is actually Satan who is credited with having the power of death. And yet, in Jesus' own death, he defeated the devil. And to top it all off, Jesus demonstrated his superiority over death by rising from the dead. And so the one weapon, if you will, that Satan possessed as having the power over death, Jesus says, I have authority over that too. I'll rise from the dead. How awesome is that? It's what we're celebrating next week. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 can say that death no longer has a sting. Jesus, in his resurrection, demonstrated that Satan's power has been broken, the requirements of the law fulfilled, sins forgiven, and hope that one day we too will rise from the dead. I said it already, but Satan, in trying to kill Jesus here in Luke 22, is playing right into God's sovereign plan. And it demonstrates for us that Satan is even subject to God's authority, right? He's not the equal enemy to God's power. God even uses him to accomplish his purposes. All right, second part of Luke 22. We come to the middle of this chapter, and Jesus is preparing his disciples for the events that are to come, and he has a phrase that he repeats a couple of times, or, or closely repeats. What is that phrase from verse 37? Andy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The phrase that is repeated twice is something to the effect of uh, that what was written about me might be fulfilled. And so what does this phrase teach us about the death of Jesus? If this was just part of a fulfillment of scriptures, what does this then teach us about Jesus' death? Shane? Totally. Yeah. God wasn't like, ah, he caught me off guard. I need to come up with a plan real quick. No, the scriptures for centuries before this had been anticipating that Jesus would die. God has a sovereign plan. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, great point. Thanks for pointing that out. This has been God's plan since the garden. All right, according to Isaiah 53, 12, which Jesus quotes in this passage, not only was he numbered with the transgressors, but what else does Jesus 
do for them. Oh, Temi. Yeah. Isaiah 53.12 says that he makes intercession for the transgressors. An intercessor is a mediator, a go-between. There was a bridge that couldn't, or a gap that could not be spanned between us and God, and yet Jesus is that intercessor. He is that go-between. And I want us to think about the intercessory work of Jesus really quickly, because there's no one better for the job than him. As a man, as someone who was numbered with the transgressors, he identified with us. He became one of us. Scripture even says that Jesus has a human body still. And yet, he's also God. He was sent from the Father to do the work of the Father. After his resurrection, he was raised to sit at the right hand of the Father. And so our mediator is kind of like the best of both worlds. He's one of us, and he's God. And the encouragement of Hebrews is because we have a high priest who knows what it is to suffer like we have been, who knows what it is to be tempted, come boldly to the throne of grace and find that mercy and help that you need in your time of need. Jesus' intercessory work is awesome. It is really cool to consider his humanity and his deity both at play in being an intercessor. From Luke 23. I asked you to reflect on Jesus' words when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus says this after being falsely tried and accused, after being mocked and treated with contempt. He's beaten, a crown of thorns is placed on his head, nails are driven into his hands and his feet, and he's on the cross, and he says, Forgive them. This would be the absolute last thing on my mind. I would not want to forgive the people that have treated me this way. And so as you reflected on these words, what were some of the, what were some of the things that came to mind as you consider Jesus' love for sinners? Andy. Yeah, Andy was saying Jesus is perfect. I think maybe the key phrase in there was that you said he died for everyone, even the people who were murdering him. Julia, what else came to mind? Yeah, Jesus' love is unconditional. He loves everyone. Mike. Yeah, I, to your point, Jesus gives these people the benefit of ignorance. He says, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. I'm inclined to think, oh, they knew full and well what they were doing. The religious leaders had made a mockery of this trial. They were trying to put him to death, and Jesus says, they don't know. What else?
Yeah, we see the fulfillment of that forgiveness almost immediately in the book of Acts. Mm. Yeah, Romans 5 says that we as humans, we'd have to really scratch our heads and think about if we would die for someone who's good or righteous. Uh, Maybe. But how did God demonstrate his love for us? Like John was saying, when we were his enemies, still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeah, any other thoughts? Claire. Yeah. Jesus has compassion, pity, Temmy. Mm. Yeah, maybe a couple of other things that came to mind for myself was the humility of Jesus and his submissiveness to the Father's plan. Right, just I think it's John that tells us that when Jesus is in the garden and all these soldiers come to arrest him, he speaks and everyone falls backwards. <laughs> Uh, Jesus has no lack of power on the cross to deliver himself. Although people are mocking him and saying, you're the king, take yourself down from here. Oh, he very well could. But he's humble and submissive to the Father's plan and letting people kill him? Yeah. All right, so according to Luke 6, what is the expectation for how we should treat our enemies? Brenda. Yeah, we're, we're to forgive them. I'll try to paraphrase the verse as best I remember. Oh, Cynthia. Yeah, thank you. Bless those who curse you. Pray, love for these people that are our enemies. As I was reflecting on this text, it just made me realize that Jesus wasn't giving this teaching and saying, well, that's your guys' problem and that's how I want you to live. So good luck with that. Jesus practiced what he preached, did he not? He, He gives these instructions and then does them. Later on, as people are murdering him and he loves them he forgives them this goes against everything in us right we want people to be repaid in equal amount that they treated us and yet part of being born again is to have new desires to have the spirit of god equipping us to do the words in luke 6 it is possible to love our enemies, to pray for them even, to forgive them as Jesus did here. John. Totally. Totally. 
What would be more hateful than to withhold the gospel from someone? Say, come to Christ. I was like you once. All right, Luke 24. Excuse me, second part of Luke 23. What do the thief and the centurion both recognize to be true about Jesus? Barb. Okay, I think it was a little bit more specific than that, Andy. That he was innocent. Yeah, uh, I hope the irony is not lost on you there. Here's a, a Gentile and a guy being crucified next to Jesus, and they both say, he's innocent. And yet it was the religious rulers who ignored the truth. And they said, we don't care if you're innocent or not, we're killing you. We'll put you to death. Just thought it was interesting that some of the minor players in this story, they know Jesus is innocent. And according to 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Peter 3, what was accomplished through the death of specifically the innocent one? What do these verses teach us? Yeah, Heather. Yeah, nailed it. Let me just read those two verses again, just so we can get a refresher on 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter. Here's 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. First Peter 3, Christ also suffered once for sins. Listen to how it's described. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Both of these verses talk about how it was Christ's sinlessness, his righteousness and his death in that that gives us credits to our account, his righteousness. It's kind of the verse that the whole exchange training is based on, kind of building this idea that there's this great exchange that took place. We deserved death and condemnation and the wrath of God poured out on us. Jesus deserved none of that. He was righteous. And yet, it's like we switch places. And the innocent one was put to death. And those who are guilty, go free. If we're in Christ, this is the glory of the gospel. We deserve rightly judgment and condemnation and punishment, and Jesus bore that for us. Luke 24. There is a phrase that is repeated in verse 27 and 44. Uh, in verse 27, he's on the road to Emmaus. In 44, he's in this room with the disciples. What, what phrase is repeated here? Uh, Brenda. Yeah, I, I realized it wasn't an exact like word-for-word -word repetition, but the idea was repeated that Moses and the prophets have talked about the events that have just taken place. Twice, Jesus is surrounded by people who are in varying levels of despair or confusion. How did these things just happen? Jesus died, what? They're so confused. And Jesus says, you should have known. 
The scriptures talked about this. This should not have come as a surprise to you. And so that's the intent of the next series of verses then. How do each of the following passages from the Old Testament anticipate the coming of Jesus? So we'll just start with Genesis 3. How does that reveal Christ to us? Julia. Yeah, right in the garden, immediately after the fall, like Shane pointed out, God has a plan. He describes this struggle that is going to take place between an offspring of a woman and the devil, the serpent. The serpent is going to bruise the heel of this offspring, but that offspring is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And we know that this is fulfilled in the events that we're reading. As Hebrews says, it was through his death that Jesus destroyed the devil. Yeah, so from the beginning, we're seeing already God has a plan. How about Deuteronomy 18? How does that anticipate Jesus? Yeah, Lisa. Yeah, there's a prophet coming like Moses in Deuteronomy 18. How awesome would that have been for the Jewish people? Moses was amazing. He is unparalleled in the Old Testament in terms of his relationship to God, in terms of the power that he displays. And Moses says, there's someone else like me who's coming. Whoa. Well, we get to the New Testament. John the Baptist starts his ministry. And they ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. And they say, are you the prophet? Talking about this guy from Deuteronomy 18. And he says, no. It's not until we get to the book of Acts that Peter, as he's preaching, says, you know that prophet Moses was talking about? You guys killed him. It was Jesus who speaks the very words of God to you. Hebrews is going to even say that as a son is greater than a slave in the house, so too is Jesus greater than Moses. How about from 2 Samuel 7? How does that anticipate the coming of Jesus? I'm sorry, Dan. The seed is the coming Messiah. Okay. Maybe a little more specifically, what's going on in, yeah, Cynthia. Yeah, God promises a descendant of David will rule forever. Pretty awesome. Isaiah 7.14, what is anticipated about Christ from this passage of scripture? He'd be born of a virgin. And in the first chapter of Matthew, here it is, that prophecy fulfilled. The point of this exercise is that when Jesus is telling these disciples, Moses and the prophets spoke of me, we can go back and look. They did. They should have known. These things are taking place. All right, very quickly. I believe it's in verse 22. I could have that totally wrong. But Jesus is talking to these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're in despair. And they say, what did they say? What expectation did they have of Jesus? What did they think he was going to come to do? Surely. Okay, and from the wording of the text, what do they say about Jesus? Brooklyn. Yeah, they said, oh, we thought this guy was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Likely, like Shirley was saying, in a political sense, he's going to deliver us from Roman oppression. They're, they're close, right? They're using the right language, but how does Titus 2 help clarify what Jesus actually came to do? Julia. Yeah, Jesus did come to redeem. 
but not politically. He came to redeem us from lawlessness, Titus says. And it's not just the people of Israel. He came to redeem a people for himself, comprised of slave, free, Jew, Gentile. This is what Jesus came to do, and he accomplished it. It's awesome. Last thing. This is your chance to speak out about the book of Luke. As we, as we reflect back on the book, what are some of the big ideas or key takeaways that you'll have as we've spent five weeks now reading the book? What are some of the things that, I'll say, leapt off the page at you from this book? Yeah, Heather. Satan is certainly active in Luke, as we saw today. I don't want to, um, to the exclusion of just Satan being responsible, we certainly have a flesh that dwells in us that is wicked and evil, and we will be condemned for our own actions. So I'm not trying to just shove everything onto him and say, well, he's the problem, that's why I'm in hell. No. We are condemned for our own actions as well. But great point, just Satan is certainly active, totally. Yeah, any other thoughts from Luke? Craig. Totally. I thought back to his opening statement that he's writing to Theophilus so that he will know with certainty the things that he's been taught. As you finish Luke, do you know Jesus better? Is your faith more certain? Yeah. A credible, trustworthy account of the life of Christ. Any other thoughts from Luke? Yeah, John. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I think Pastor John and I were talking this week that Luke may have been her favorite one that, we, that we've read of the three. There's just something about it. Uh, the extra details are awesome. It just gives a fuller picture of who Jesus is. Yeah, Mike. Mm. Yeah, we can see some of ourselves in these responses of these people. And Jesus forgives. Any other comments on Luke before we pray? Claire.
Yeah, I, I mentioned this briefly last week, but it's been pointed out that Luke, uh, maybe unlike any other gospel writer, really includes people who would have been marginalized in society during this day. So yeah, you're going to read about women, tax collectors, Samaritans, Gentiles, all having a role and responding to Jesus. That is like, wow. Jesus really did come to seek and save the lost. And I think that's evident in Luke. Let's pray. Lord, we love your word. We love your son. We're so grateful for his work on our behalf in saving us from our sins. Bearing the just wrath poured out on what should have been my sin. And Christ taking it instead. Thank you. Um, Help us to love your son as we worship him today. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.